Thanks again for joining us online. My name's Mark. So glad that you have logged on wherever you're at. Um, it's a good day to be together. I, it was not a good day earlier this week in Beirut, Lebanon, and our hearts are just grieving over the, just the loss of life and destruction and the turmoil. We are so grateful to be able to point you to our wonderful partner, World Relief, and uh, they're in a position to be able to do a lot of good for the people. Let's be praying for um, the church there as they reach out and just be the hands and feet of Christ. And then uh, as God leads us, I just encourage you to be able to give to the people through World Relief. You can learn how to do that on our digital bulletin, doorcreek.info under the tab that says what's happening. So thanks for your generosity. I don't think there's ever been a time in world history where everyone worldwide is longing to get back to normal. Maybe back in 1918, it was like that. But there's certainly a lot more people living today. So I mean, like, it's just been so hard. And normal seems so long ago. And are we even sure what normal was like? And as we long to get back to normal, there's actually some questions that come right out of our teaching passage today from Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 that has us kind of have a little bit of perspective to bring clarity to the question like when we're longing to get back to normal was it was it actually that good so here are the three questions from the text were you satisfied with your job happy with your career students just apply that to school all right second were you content with your life with all that you had all that you didn't have third question was joy the preoccupying emotion that described your life? Today we have the opportunity to learn the secret of a preoccupying joy. This flow of joy, the sense of just being lost in this space of goodness. That isn't anything that we achieve, it actually we humbly receive as a gift from God. So here's how Solomon, the wisest, wealthiest man, the king, put it after many years of chasing all these other things to find this joy. Here's how he put it in chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. Solomon says, this is what I've observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. So we want to talk about that. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. Awesome. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're made for. That's what we're longing for. To be preoccupied with gladness of heart. So, wow. This, are, you, are you paying attention? This is the offer today through God's good word. A God who made us and knows us and loves us. A God who gave his son that we could experience this. A preoccupying joy, work that's satisfied, contentment in our life, enjoyment with all that we have and don't have, preoccupied with a glad heart, not restless, not full of envy, covetousness, not a life full with regrets. My sense is, though, we're preoccupied with a lot of things that have nothing to do with the gifts of our good God. 
We're preoccupied with school right now. Like, how is this going to work? Are you kidding me? How long are they going to be doing this virtual thing? And how are we going to make it work? We're preoccupied with masks. How much longer? When can I finally ditch it? We're preoccupied with money. Oh, man. Paying the bills, the debt. What about my job? Am I going to still have my job? What about our business? Is it going to survive? What, what about our retirement? Do we have enough? We're preoccupied with COVID. And so some of us are filled with fear. Others just really angry. We're preoccupied with our health or the health of a loved one. We're preoccupied with lots of things. Solomon says, I, I want you to be preoccupied with a joy that transcends your circumstances right now. That could be yours right now in the middle of a pandemic with whatever little you have or much you have. With the biggest challenge in your life or just sunny skies right now. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not only going to show you what the gift is and how to receive this gift through humility in a relationship with God. But I'm going to steer you clear of some booby traps because there are some minefields out there. The first one is pride, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5. And the rest of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 then is all about greed and the love of money. So grab your Bibles, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we'll start in on this whole matter of pride. Here's what he says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. The house of God would be the temple where they went to worship God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they say and what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? So the pitfall of pride. Now, here's what I know about pride. I can smell it. I can see it almost a mile away in just about everybody but me. Right? Man, it's just so easy to see until you look in the mirror and you go, oh, man. I mean, because like, who wants to? I have never had anybody come into my office and say, Pastor, I just got to tell you, I'm really struggling with pride. It's just, we just don't see it. But here, he's just giving us some insight here. He's saying, here's how you can find pockets of pride in your life by just taking notice of your approach to God. What is your disposition? What is the habit of how you approach God in your worship privately, publicly? And so he's just pointing it out. He's saying a proud person has this careless, casual, if you will, cavalier attitude toward God. He says, watch your steps. You're meeting with Almighty God, your judge, who will judge the righteous and the wicked. Chapter 3, verse 15 and 17. He's, he's Almighty God who told, who told Moses, Moses, take off your sandals, your shoes. You're standing on holy ground because you're in my presence. A proud person forgets who God is that they're mortal, that they live on earth, and who God is, that he's infinite, he's eternal, and he's over all things, and he fills all things. 
A proud person talks a great game. Oh, a great spiritual game. There's abundance of these pious words, these, these spiritual cliches. And, and there's this bartering and these grandiose promises before God. Solomon says it's all meaningless. His conclusion is, fear God. You got a problem with pride? You want to receive this unbelievable gift from God of happiness in your work and contentment in your life and a preoccupation with joy. Fear God. Trust him. Learn to know him. Walk with him humbly. It's this trembling fear. It's this, this humble obedience where we don't just hear God, but we follow him acknowledging our need, preparing us to receive all the good things that God has for us. Pride says, God, I don't need anything. I'm good. And if I'm lacking anything, I can figure out how to chase that down too. And I actually got some resources that you probably need and I'll make a deal with you if push comes to shove. So the lover and worship of God is humble, not proud. Makes me think of the puffer fish, the blowfish. Um, this fun, cute little fish, right? Now, this is all puffed up. Many times its size, it's got this elastic stomach, takes in all this water, sometimes a little bit of air, so that if there's a, you know, a, an enemy out there looking to eat this fish, it's kind of, I'm bigger than you think I am, right? I love the puffer fish. But he, he doesn't just use size as a deterrent. Actually, the puffer fish, most all of them anyways, the blowfish sometimes it's called, is filled with lots of toxins, deadly toxins. So they're terrible to taste for the other fish and they're deadly. So listen to this, the toxin in a puffer fish is a hundred times more powerful than cyanide. And one puffer fish can wipe out 30 human beings and there's no antidote. So what is Solomon saying? He's saying, stay away from the puffer fish. Stay away from puffing yourself up in pride, making yourself look bigger and better and badder than you are. And this is a toxin that destroys things. It destroys your marriage. It's destroying a church, a ministry, a workplace, a friendship. I love how John Stott put it. He said this, pride is our greatest enemy, humility our best friend. Man, just think about that. Pride is our greatest enemy. Do we actually believe that? Or do we just think it's like a little weakness? Humility is our best friend, our best friend. So he's talking about this pitfall of pride. And if we're truly humble, we'll come to God, he says, first to listen. So how do I know if I'm living in a humble life? We come to God to listen, that we might actually follow his wise, true godly counsel because we want to hear God's voice. We need his perspective for all the complexities of life. You need that right now. You need to hear from God. You well, how do I hear from God? We hear from God in his living word. I, I love how Hebrews 4.12 puts it. God's word is this. For the word of God is alive. Some translations say it's living and active. What does it do? It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, where? To the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart, the motivations, all of it. It's living and it's shaping us. And we're hearing God's voice in his word. The Holy Spirit 
who was God's agent to use human fallible authors to give us God's word just as he wanted it shared with us, takes that word, drives it into our minds, in our hearts to, to shape us, to make us more like Christ, the living word. So the lover and worshiper of God is humble. We're not filled with pious God talk. We're to guard our steps. Man, guarding our steps? Are you kidding me? We're all over this concept right now as it comes to COVID. We're guarding our steps. We're all masked up, right? We're washing our hands. And we have never been more aware of 72 inches in our life. Little Henry, our three-year-old grandson, it's been so great to spend the last two months with Henry. And, and mom says to Henry, Henry, remember your bubble. Oh man, we're all about our bubbles. Like, dude, dude, you are too close, right? So he said, okay, he said, are you guarding your steps, not just from a virus right now, but from pride? This toxin that destroys your life and all the things that are near and dear from you. And it's preventing you from that humble posture of actually having open hands to receive God's gift of a preoccupying joy. We've been talking about habits this week. If you didn't get my vlog, we don't know who you are. So give us your contact information so you get all these great resources. So in my log, in my vlog, I talked about, hey, we need to establish regular habits of worship because it's all funky right now. Like it's funky for me. Like I'm usually in a church building filled with people and having a great time on a Sunday. And right now Sundays, Laurie and I are worshiping together and then it could easily feel like any other day. Establish a regular habit of worship personally, corporately with God's people as we come together now even virtually to worship together. Maybe you're going to do that on a driveway or in your patio, in your garage, right? Just coming together with people, make it a routine. What is your routine? Solomon's saying. What is your habit, Mark? Is it careless? Is it occasional? Is it optional? Or do we understand we have an invitation from Almighty God, our creator and sustainer, to actually do life with him, come before him, and find life through his life-giving word? Solomon goes on then to talk about the love of money. The love of money, another great pitfall. In verses 8 and 9, he connects corruption and injustice to our greed. Why is there oppression? Back in chapter 4, Ryan preached on that last week. Psalm was clear. Misuse of power at a personal level. Your position and your power, your privilege, can actually be used to trash other people. Here, though, he's not talking about personal. He's talking about systemic structures, structural injustice. And the result is, in chapter 5, verse 8, People's rights are denied. The poor and the marginalized find out that as Derek Kidner, the great commentator in wisdom literature here in the commentary on Ecclesiastes says, justice is a luxury they can't afford. Oh, that's been so true for so many black young men who got busted with some drugs the same way a white guy got busted with some drugs. But luxury and justice was something they couldn't afford. It was a luxury they couldn't afford. That's why there's mass incarceration in our state made up of 8% of African-Americans, yet over 50% of our state's prison population is, is made up of African-Americans because justice is a luxury not everybody can afford. So Solomon, 
is pointing out these structural realities that are stacked against so many people. And the cancer of greed causes the very people who are called to care and protect people to actually use people for their selfish gain to line their wallets. So we read this in verses 8 and 9. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. You can almost see the corruption of payoffs and bribery working down the line. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. So he's talking about the systemic structural injustice that it's just flowing out of this love of money of greed. Don't be surprised does not mean turn a blind eye. It's always going to be here. It doesn't mean that. In fact, it raises the question. The, the, the text says, if you see, the question that Solomon would ask us today, do you see? Do we see injustice? Do we see the poor oppressed, justice denied, rights withheld? And probably for a lot of us guys, we don't. Because of our wealth, because of our status, because probably of our skin color, we're treated differently. And we've been duped into thinking that the way we navigate life is how everybody else navigates life. You start to hear the stories of our friends, sisters and brothers of color and go, oh my word. And if you haven't had that opportunity, just talk to them, hear their story, read the biographies, the autobiographies. It's all around us. But we're, we're not just called as Christians to see it. The scriptures are clear. Christ came for these people and he came to loosen the chains. And we're called to bring this kind of worship, Isaiah 58, where we break the chains of injustice, where we loosen people from under the weight of oppression, that we set people free, not just say that's busted up, that's wrong. But we're against wrong and we're for right and making wrongs right. So on this whole matter of the love of money, there's this really interesting point in history in 1830 when the Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville recorded his famous observations on America. And he put it this way. He noted a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants. In the midst of abundance, he would say, he was convinced that the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And Solomon was too. And we have all kinds of examples. So you just rewind the tape 12 years back, 2008, in the midst of the economic crisis, right? So just listen to this. There followed a string of tragic suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. The acting CFO of Freddie Mac hanged himself in his basement. The CEO of Sheldon Good shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. A French money manager who lost $1.4 billion of his clients' money due to the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme slid his wrists, died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior bank executive with, with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his very expensive 500 pound a night suite in Knightsbridge, London. And then when a Bear Stearns executive learned that he would not be hired by J.P. Morgan Chase, which had bought his collapsed firm, he overdosed and leapt 
from the 29th floor of his office building, all of it reminding us of the tragedies upon tragedies of the stock market crash of 1929. Because when you build your hopes on money and all that it promises and you lose it, that's what you're left with. Despair. Psalm is all too familiar with this strange melancholy, this despair. He's echoed it throughout his book through the phrase meaningless, meaningless. It's all meaningless. And so he speaks from his experience. The wealthiest man for sure in his day, perhaps at any point in history, scholars would say the amount of gold that was his and came in year after year, it made him a trillionaire in today's dollars. Can you imagine? Here is warning. Heed his warning about loving money more than God. In verses 10 through 12, chapter 5, he starts to describe the lover of money. Whoever loves money never has enough. That's a problem. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. We just need a little bit more. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefits are they to the owner except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. So he wants to talk to us, flesh it out, this love of money, the sad realities. I love what Keller says about a lover of money. This is what he says. This is an amazing quote in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Lovers of money are those who find themselves daydreaming and fantasizing about new ways to make money. We've never done that. Hmm. New possessions to buy. Man, that bass fishing boat, guys. And looking with jealousy on those who have more than they do. Your best friend. They feel they have control of their lives and are safe and secure because of their wealth. That's his description of a lover of money. And the sad realities are money doesn't satisfy because it never will be enough. Money and wealth complicate life because the more money you have, the more stuff you have, the more stuff you have, the more people you need to manage your stuff. And they don't actually bring any benefit to you. In fact, they're just jealously looking at the stuff and probably pocketing some of it on their way home each night. And then he says, it breeds anxiety. And with that insomnia, it'll keep you up at night while your day laborer who cleans your house, mows your lawn, sleeps like a baby. It doesn't satisfy because it wasn't meant to satisfy. In chapter 3, verse 11, Solomon says, this is just profound about who we are as human beings, that God has placed eternity in our hearts, that there is an eternal dimension to your life that the Bible says will live forever. And it is this God-shaped vacuum that money can't get into and money can't fill. Only God can do that. And that's why it doesn't. And so quickly the American dream can become a nightmare. And that's the sad story of Christina Anassis, the late heiress of Aristotle. She had an estimated annual income of $50 million. She had everything and anything that money could buy except a preoccupying joy, a gladness of heart, happiness. So, you know, she loved Diet Coke. She's living in Europe. You couldn't get Diet Coke. No problem. She's got a private jet. She sends her pilot every month to the tune of $30,000 a month to go get her a bunch of Diet Coke. 
oh, she's lonely. She wants some friends. Her friends say, man, Christina, we love you, but we got a life and we can't stay. She says, well, let me give you an allowance. How does this sound if I give you twenty dollars to $30,000 a month? She had all kinds of friends then, right? So she um, had a sad childhood. Uh, she had uh, four marriages that didn't work out so well. Her parents divorced. Her dad was frequently absent. She suffered depression, lots of suicide attempts, and she dies at age 37 of a heart attack. They, they say likely resulting from these bouts of dieting, weight influxion and fluctuations, and overuse of amphetamines and barbiturates. What a sad story. In verses 13 through 7, just look down in the text. You can see five truths about loving money. The first four are found in these five verses, 13 through 17. He's going to say, hoarding only hurts the hoarder. It only hurts the hoarder. At age 53, John D. Rockefeller was the only billionaire in the world. He was making a million dollars a week. So this guy could eat anything. This guy could have, a, you know, like a hundred private chefs cooking him the most great meals. But here's what his diet was because he was so tied up in knots in an anxious mess. He had milk and crackers. Was it Ritz? Was it saltines? I don't know. That was his diet. And he couldn't sleep. And it went on and on like this until he started giving his money away. And he lived in 98. Hoarding hurts the hoarder. A fortune can be lost in an instant. You've got it all and then it's gone. Some of you know that. Bankruptcy. Some of you know that person. Man, they were living high on the hog and then nothing. Third, you can't take it with you. Naked we come into the world, naked we depart. Verse 17, at the end of the day, loving money leads to greater su frustration, suffering, and anger. That doesn't sound like anything like happiness, joy, satisfaction, contentment. And that's what a lot of people have. Maybe that's what you have right now. Frustration, suffering, anger. Because you're chasing for the right thing in the wrong things. And you become a lover of money, not a lover of God. And Jesus was clear, you cannot do both. You cannot love God and love money. There's more in chapter six. We read this in verses one and two. I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. Notice God gives that, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them. And strangers instead, excuse me, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. So God gives them all these things, but in the end of the day, God doesn't give them the gift. The gift of what? Of enjoying it, of being content with what they have. Because they've turned a, a, a temporary thing into an ultimate thing. And they're not looking to God for what only he can bring. A satisfying joy and contentment. So he goes on in verse 3. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. Prosperity without enjoyment is meaningless. And if we don't have the gift, we can have prosperity 
and it's all empty. And so what's the gift? It's not just what God gives, it's who God is. God is the gift. And Christ is called God's indescribable gift. And that's how we find it. We receive it through faith in Christ so that we have this relationship that's marked by this reverent, humble, affectionate obedience towards God, wanting to hear his word, wanting to live his word. So that's what 5, 18 through 20 is all about, is receiving this gift. Pride is going to keep us away. I don't need the gift. I can, I can secure it in my own. It, riches and, and wealth and the love of money deceive us into thinking, I've already got the gift. I've got everything I need. All this stuff and all that goes with it. The happiness and the security that is all a facade, a charade. It's temporary. Now, we typically think that the way we're going to find contentment is through change. And I just need a change. I'm single. I'll be content and happy if I just could get married. I'm married. I'm not happy. I'll be happy if I get divorced, if I find a new spouse. I'll be happy when I get a new job. I'll be happy when I get a little more money. I'll be happy with some new friends. I'll be happy when we finally get out of here and move. I'll be happy when my life gets back to normal. But God says, no, actually, you can be happy today. The enemy's going to tell you it's not going to be through me. It's going to keep saying, you're just almost there. It's just right around the corner. You can get it. And I'm just saying, will you trust me? God's saying, will you trust me? Solomon's saying, will you trust God, the giver of all good gifts? Will you trust him to give you that which you were made for and that you long for? Satisfaction in your work, joy in your life, not a restlessness, not a, oh my goodness, my life is full of regrets, but I've experienced God's forgiveness, his daily grace. I've got hope today. I've got contentment in my position, in my lot right now today. My best days may be ahead, but I'm living good days right now, as hard as it is, because I'm walking with God and he's walking with me. So here's the truth. Building our lives on ourselves or on the love of money won't satisfy. It won't bring contentment, enjoyment. Only the gift of God does. And I love how Psalm 16, we'll end with this, 1611 puts it. You make known to me, God, the path of life. You, God, fill me with joy. Who does? God does. Fill me with joy in your presence, in this relationship, with what kind of joy? Eternal pleasures kind of joy at your right hand. Who's seated at the right hand of God, the Father? Even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh, what a Savior. Who lived in the riches of heaven as eternal God, and he divested himself of it all, that through his poverty we might become rich. He is the one who is worshipped through eternity and always will be and always has been. Who came and took on human flesh and was mocked and hung on a cross so that you and I, through his sufferings and humility, could become children of God. That you could become God's princess, his prince, filled with honor and dignity and hope. Let's pray. So as I go to prayer, I want to ask you two questions. Where is God asking you to grow in humility? Where is that? In what relationship, in what area of your life do you need to grow in humility? 
because pride goes before the fall and God opposes the proud. Where is it? And where is God asking you to grow in your love for God? Or do you need to give control to him? What is not surrendered to him? Father God, forgive us for our pride and our greed. Free us from these traps. Christ, your spirit in us allows us to live humble lives. Your spirit in us allows us to fear God to do life with God, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. God, Lord Jesus, you are the one who gives us the, the spirit of generosity so we're not stuck in this ugly pride. Lord, we want to humbly receive your good gifts. Lord, I pray for my friends listening now that you would give them a preoccupying joy and gladness of heart and contentment in their life right now. We pray all these things to your honor and glory so that we could bless the world over the overflow of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.